Uh, we have some real uh, good digging to do in the book of Nehemiah. If you're new with us today, we are uh, in week three of a 13-week series on the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, and we're taking a uh, as pure of a look as we can at it, talking about just what it would look like for us to get a second wind in our walk with God. And, and what it might look for us as a congregation to be revived in his presence. So it's a rich time that we're in, in the word. And so let's bow right now and ask God's blessing upon our time. Father, as we move into chapter 3 of this book, we ask that by the power of your spirit that you would uh, give us ears to hear and eyes to see that which you have revealed to us. And Lord, may we understand this chapter rightly, Lord, and apply it uh, very diligently to our lives. God, we're here because each in our own way, uh, we desperately want to follow you and, and know what it means to live rightly before you. So may we journey that way today, I pray in Christ's name, amen. So if you've ever tried to read the Bible from front to back, from cover to cover, <laughs> you know that it's rather easy to get through the first two books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, because it's filled with intrigue and action and betrayal and even romance. And so as it's all wrapped up in faith and God's movement in and through the early days of this earth, you, you, just, you just read about these amazing things that happened to God's people. But then when you get to the third and fourth books of the Old Testament, Leviticus and Numbers, all of a sudden now it's a different story. In fact, it would almost be like you're on a snowmobile in Genesis and Exodus. I'm from Cleveland. You're on a snowmobile from Genesis and Exodus, and you're on pure white powder, and then you hit the third and fourth books of the Old Testament, and it's like you just hit concrete. It's like you're getting stopped dead in your tracks. Because in Leviticus and Numbers, you read about a lot of names of people that you have no idea who they are, and they're listed in seemingly long, endless lists. You're reading about Old Testament ceremonial laws that hold details that confuse you. And as a result of this, there's a lot of people who peter out in reading the Bible when it comes to going cover to cover because they get to these third and fourth books and, and then they never make it on to Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and all the historical books that again, once again, kind of bring intrigue and romance and faith and all these things into the equation. And so the question that I want you to wrestle with today is why did God then include books like Leviticus and Numbers in his holy word? I mean, if he knew that it would be hard for some people to plow through, that it, if it would be hard for them to keep their attention going through books like these, then why did they make it into his inspired and perfect word to us? And what most Bible experts would tell us is this, and it makes sense, and that is that even in the seemingly monotonous parts of the Bible, there still is a ton that God has for us, obviously, because it's his word. And so you and I dare not do a drive-by when we confront certain portions of the Bible that seem Leviticus-like or Numbers-like, because though it might not make initial sense to us, there has to be something in there for us, or it wouldn't have made God's Word. It only makes sense. And the reason that this is so important in an introductory way for you and I this morning is because as we enter into chapter 3 now, of the Old Testament book, Nehemiah, the book that we're studying this winter at our church, we come to what may seem to be a tedious 
if not uninteresting part of the story, because you can see it on your outline, and Cactus and Venue, you can see it on your outline. It, it, it contains listings of names of families and towns that you have no idea who they are or where they existed, and it's a long, tedious listing in chapter 3 here, but we dare not skim over this listing because it has to contain something very life-giving in it for you and I for the simple reason that it made it into God's Word. And so let me give you a backdrop to chapter 3 and then quickly enter us into chapter 3, and we're going to see what this chapter has for us this morning. So let's get our bearings straight on Nehemiah. You might remember that the entire storyline of this historical book is that Israel has been in exile, banished to faraway places within the Persian Empire. Jerusalem has been leveled, including many of their homes and the temple that Solomon has built, and well, the walls and the gates around the city have been destroyed. But over the last 90 years, the Persians have allowed some of the Jews, a very small minority, to return to Jerusalem, and they have rebuilt the temple, which is good news, but many, many of the homes and even the walls and gates around the city that were protecting the city need to be rebuilt. And let's remember at this point that this is all symbolic of their torn down, beat up spirituality. That, that Nehemiah is not just about rebuilding walls, it's about rebuilding God's people who need to be revived, God's people who need to get a second wind when it comes to their walk with the Lord. And so Nehemiah is a good and godly leader, and he's headed back to his homeland to lead the way in rebuilding the walls and the gates and thus give his people a second wind. And it's in chapter 3 here that we now turn the page to that Nehemiah is going to mobilize all the various people groups and all the various leaders to band together to build this wall and the gates. And I'm going to go into some detail here in a minute, but it's a huge undertaking. I mean, these walls are eight feet thick. It's a defensive wall. And they go on for miles. And they need to be completely rebuilt. And so when you read chapter 3, and we're going to reference portions of it in just a second, it reads a lot like Leviticus and Numbers. Because it tells us all the various names of the people and leaders and towns and cities that participated in the building of the walls and the gates. And once again, you and I need to ask the question, why? I mean, up to this point in Nehemiah, it has been a very scintillating and engaging read. I mean, we've read about him being before the king and the tension of him asking the king to be excused for 12 years to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. And then there's a lot of prayer and then there's resistance that we talked about last week. I mean, it's actually a very exciting read. And then you get to chapter 3. And again, it's like you just hit concrete. I, I, I mean, I'm going to show you this in a minute, how this works, but it's just a lot of detail that unless you really know history, and even then, it, it's not a very engaging read. So why does this chapter exist? And here's why. And it's our main point this morning, remembering that the rebuilding of the wall is core to Israel's second wind. We realize this in reading chapter 3, and that is that a congregational second wind, which is what you and I are after, takes the power of all. I, I believe that's why chapter 3 exists here. To scream to you and me, Cactus, to scream to us and Venue, that a congregational second wind 
takes the power of all. That's what God infuses. And so when you and I read chapter 3 here and all the names of peoples and cities that are unfamiliar to us, what we need to see more than anything else is the breadth of this undertaking, the undertaking to rebuild the walls that would give Israel a second win and realize that it's in the power of all that we find a second wind as God's people, as we're going to see that they did back then. So in a very real way, maybe see it this way. Look up here on the screen. The monotony of this chapter is the point. That's what I'm suggesting to you. That we should not be afraid of the monotony of this chapter because I think that's the author's intent. To, to list all the groups of people and even some of the individuals that were involved in this so that we would stand back and go, whoa, they banded together like that? And God infused and empowered that. And then think about the implications for us today. And so a great example would be this. You know, what if we listed today some of the things that you and I do as a church today for generations to come? How would they read it in generations to come? So say we listed the 400 names of the people who gathered together the other night to pray for this year for our congregation. Or say we listed the names of the 1,750 families that are involved in our Compelled by Grace campaign. And say we listed those, and then four or five generations from now, somebody's reading that list, though they wouldn't recognize many of the names, and it might even seem kind of tedious for them to read the names. At the very least, they'd, go, they'd say this, wow, boy, did that church band together to pray. Boy, did that church band together uh, to, to make something happen and be used by God in a profound way there 30, 40, 50 years ago. It, it really would communicate to them the power of all. And I think that's how we need to read Nehemiah 3. Right, let me show you this in a little bit more detail. I, I want you to look up here on the screen and Cactus and Venue, look up on your screens. I want to show you a couple of maps of what was going on in, in Israel at that time. And then I'm going to walk you through chapter 3, a quick flyover. Uh, this first map you will notice here uh, is a map of the walls around Jerusalem. And, and it's really not a confusing map. That, that real big outer wall that's represented by the thinner line that you see there at the top and looks like a square, that's the existing walls in Jerusalem right now. So if you were to go to Jerusalem and enter into what we call the old city, these would be the walls that currently surround the old city in Jerusalem now. Now the, uh, the, the, the thing that looks like a spatula there in the bottom right with the thicker lines and then all the gates mentioned there, those were the walls that Nehemiah built, uh, again, some 24, 2500 years ago. And archaeology has confirmed uh, many of the boundaries of this wall, especially the east wall and the north wall, and we can construct the rest from Nehemiah chapter 3. And let me mention a couple of things about this wall so that you're very clear. Though it was smaller than the existing uh, wall that is here today, it was still a very vast wall. As I mentioned earlier, it's eight feet thick, and they didn't have bulldozers back then. And there's 40 different sections, you can count them later if you want, 40 different sections mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3 of unequal length, but when they do tell us how long they were, they're really long. In verse 13, it uses cubits, but we know how many feet that is. It tells us that one section of the wall was 1,500 feet long, 
So how many football fields would that be? Da, 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 carry the one. Five football fields long. That's a quarter mile long, just in one section of this wall. And so this was obviously a huge collaborative effort. Again, there were eight cities mentioned in chapter 3 here that were involved in building this wall, eight outlying cities. And then it adds, as a quick note, and other rural areas, which means a lot of other cities. There's eight different people groups that are mentioned in building this wall, everywhere from priests to merchants to women to artisans. And so it was a huge effort that required everybody pitching in. And so let me give you a quick flyover here. Use this map here that we're going to put on the screen. That we're going to put on the screen. There we go. And, 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 and this map here is, is kind of a blow-up of Nehemiah's wall that will give you some of the detail of what was happening in chapter 3. And so start in the upper right there with the sheep gate, and then I'm just going to walk you very quickly uh, counterclockwise around this wall following what says, it says in chapter 3 to show you the breadth of this undertaking. So it says in 3 verse 1 that Eliashib, the high priest, was responsible for building the sheep gate. Now this is going to be really easy for some of you. Uh, what kind of animal do you think went through the sheep gate? Say it with me. Sheep. You guys are so good. You're really smart. Sheep gate was for sheep. And the reason we know that is because it was right near the temple and sheep were sacrificed in the temple. And so that was a very, very important gate. And that's why the high priest, Eliashib, was responsible for that building that gate. And then it says in verse 2 that left of this gate, or I'm sorry, yeah, to your left, the men of Jericho built. And then it says that Zakur, the son of Imri, was responsible for building up until the fish gate. And then the fish gate was built by the sons of Hasanaah. And then in verses 3 and 4, it lists a bunch of people between the fish gate and the old gate. It says that Merimoth, Meshulam, Zadok, and the Tekoites, which were from the town of Tekoa, they built between the fish gate and the old gate. And then it tells us that a different Meshulam and some others were involved in building the old gate. And then in verses 7 through 12, it lists a bunch of people, the towns of Gibeon and Mitzpah and Jaden and Uziel. And then it mentions goldsmiths and then perfumers, people who wouldn't normally build gates, were involved in building between the old gate and the valley gate. And then it tells us that the town of Zenoa was responsible for the valley gate and Hanun, and they were responsible even for that 1,500 feet length down to the dung gate. Now, we got to feel bad for the person who had to build the dung gate. Do we know why it was called the dung gate? We, have, we know this because that gate is the farthest from the town center, which you would want it to be because they didn't have elaborate sewers back then. And so for the animal refuse, is that a nice way of saying it? For the animal refuse, they would take it out through this gate. And, and this gate had been destroyed. And now this gate was rebuilt by Malkijah as well as the town of Bet Hecarim. And then the fountain gate was built by Shalom in the town of Mitzpah, the, up to the water gate where the temple, gate, temple servants built. We have the town of Betzur and the Levites and the priests and the towns of Kela all built up to the water gate. And then the Tekoites again built up to the horse gate. The priests built the horse gate. Shemaiah built the east gate. Hananiah and Hanun built up into the inspection gate. The inspection gate was built by the goldsmiths, and then the goldsmiths and the merchants completed our full circle up until the sheep gate, and now it's all complete. And here's my point. 
even in a three and a half minute flyover that I just did for you guys, I could tell by the look in some of your eyes that that was painful. That, 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 that was hard for you to stay because we're mentioning names, and I didn't even mention near all of them. We're mentioning names of people and towns that, that, that you're just not familiar with. And, and please see, that's kind of the point. The monotony of it all is the point that you and I are supposed to read about all different kinds of people from all different walks of life that maybe we aren't familiar with, but we can get that much and banding together, they built the wall. God empowered it. This was going to give Israel their second wind. And it's in the power of all that God does that. And as I was thinking about it this week, guys, I thought, man, this is an Old Testament picture of what the church in the New Testament would eventually become. There's a great parallel here for you and I today. We might not be building a physical wall, though there's some of that going on out here, but, but we're building a spiritual wall. You know, we are God's people who band together to do spiritual and relational things as God uses us. And what we need to see is that it's only going to happen in the power of all. And so could this be what 1 Corinthians 12 verses 4 and 6 are getting at? Look up here on the screen. It says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. You see, that's you and I. Cactus, venue, that's us. That's the church. We're building a spiritual wall, all of us together. And it takes all of us for there to be a revival, for there to be a second wind in this place that we call our church. But it's going to take all of us. Or how about Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13? You can't escape these implications. It says, And he, God, gave some to be apostles, then prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Please don't miss this, guys. It's the power of all. As we each participate in building various sections of our wall today, we'll talk about what that means here in a minute, God enters into that process and he builds his church. And so far from being a monotonous listing of a bunch of seemingly irrelevant personal names and towns, Nehemiah screams to you and me what a congregational second wind looks like and even what it takes as we band together. So if you don't see anything else today, see that, because that's how we need to view chapter 3. Now, with this understanding, I want to do a couple of things in our time remaining here. I want to take this idea a couple of steps further and share with you two additional things right from Nehemiah 3 about the power of all. And I'll just warn you, one of these things is going to be uh, kind of a negative thing in challenge form, but I think it's very relevant for you and I today. And, and, and then the second thing that I'm going to share with you is going to be a very positive, life-giving thing. So let's take the challenge first. And here it is. And that is that when even one fails to do his or her part, the whole suffers. Most of us have experienced this already in some form in this life. 
that when one fails to do his or her part, the whole suffers. So look with me at how verse 5 of Nehemiah 3 shows us this. This is very revealing, and it's easy to miss if you're not looking close. Look up here on the screen or at your own Bible. Look at verse 5. It says, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Whoa. So you got this group of nobles from Tekoa. Bible experts suggest that they were possibly elected officials, and they refused to help in the rebuilding of the walls and the gates. And though it doesn't say why they refused, commentators, again, Bible experts, suggest two reasons that make perfect sense as to why they wouldn't participate. First, they were too high and mighty for such menial labor as those who are elected officials sometimes see themselves. They didn't see themselves as ones who would get their hands dirty and do manual labor. And so it's interesting. They made the list here in chapter 3. It's just that they didn't make the list in a positive way. I'm going to ask you a question here in a minute as to why you think they made the list or why they're listed negatively here, but just suffice it to say right now that this is the only mention of slackers in all of chapter 3. It is. I mean, all of chapter 3 is very positive in its portrayal of those who got involved. And we're going to look deeper at that in a second here. This is the only negative mention here. Why? As you're thinking about that, there's a second reason that Bible experts surmise that these nobles didn't participate. And this one's even more sobering. And that is that they probably didn't agree with Nehemiah's God-led plan. As church people can sometimes do. Right? We've all experienced that. Well, I don't agree with what my church is doing right now, and I'm not going to participate in this, and yada, 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 but I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay, and I'm going to stay, and I'm going to fold my arms. Some of you are folding your arms. might want to uncross them right now. I'm going to fold my arms, and, 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 and I'm not going to be a part of that aspect of it. That, that's, in a sense, what they were doing. Maybe they were afraid of what we're going to see in the coming weeks of the resistance they were going to get from the Persians. Maybe they just thought that, you know, hey, building a wall was just a wall. What's that going to do? But they didn't realize that it was part of the spiritual leading of God. See, here's the deal. Even though the high priest, Nehemiah, the Levites, the priests, and all the leaders had stacked hands and said, this is what God is leading us to do. These were the sole holdouts of the entire project. And I asked you earlier to think about why would they be listed in verse 5? Is it to embarrass them? (laughs) Is it to call them out? Is it to put shame on them? I don't think it's any of that. I I think it's simply to communicate that there are times when people say, I'm going to be in the body but not a part of the body. And what the author is trying to say here is it just hurts the cause. It, It hurts the whole process. And it doesn't give any glory and honor to God. And what adds even more grit and substance to this, and I put this in your notes there, look at verses 12, 17, and 20. It mentions three people groups, now get this, who you would think would not be involved in building this wall, but were. And in verse 12, it says, and I'll quote it directly, it says that Shalom and his daughters repaired. Now think about that. Young women working on the wall. That didn't happen very much back then. They were supposed to have babies. They they were supposed to be good wives. They were supposed to maybe work in the fields, but they weren't usually swinging hammers. 
but Shalom and his daughters repaired. Then in verse 17, and I love this one, it says that Levites, and then verse 20 says priests were building walls. Now, pastors don't make good wall builders. Do we all understand that? I mean, we're seminary trained, but we're good at praying, maybe putting together the odd sermon, but we're not really good at building walls. And so it would have grabbed their attention when it says that the Levites and the priests, and doesn't this blow you away? Even the high priest, Eliashib, picture him, is there with a hammer and he's building this wall, probably praying, oh God, give my people a second wind. May this encourage them, may this revive the congregation here. After 140 years of exile, may you breathe life into these dry bones as he was building that wall. It's a beautiful picture of the power of all. And then you got goldsmiths and perfumers and merchants and I'm sure very many more. But the nobles, they were too high and mighty. They just didn't agree. And it made the list in verse 5 because it was hurtful and it didn't bring honor to God. And I think there's something in that for you and I. I think that still goes on today. And I'm not down on you if you're a noble here today. I love you. There's a lot of grace. We care for you. But maybe today what you need to hear is that when it comes to your church, you don't have to agree with everything, but you always want to be a part of the solution, not part of the problem. Amen? I mean, that's what God calls us to do. And and so the reality is, is that if you hear anything positive out of this, please hear, you're needed. And maybe what we need to do as a church is that if we tend to ever get an attitude that is more noble-like, not in a positive way, Maybe we need to ask ourselves, is this really what God wants for me in building up his church at this time? I I asked him last night, I I said this, I've done this before with you guys, I said, what is the most important piece in a jigsaw puzzle? Somebody said the corners. How do you tell them that's the wrong answer? So I'm not going to ask you guys for that. I said, no, the most important piece in a jigsaw puzzle is the piece that the dog ate. Do we all understand that? Because you can have a 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, and you can put 999 pieces in, and here's what it'll look like if you don't have that last piece. <laughs> Cactus and Venue, do you see it on your screen? That's what it looks like. And, and don't you love it? This happened to me when I was a kid. You know, I, I, we, we'd lose pieces, and we put together this beautiful jigsaw puzzle, and Dad would walk in, he'd say, you're missing a piece. And I'd be like, yeah, but we got all the rest of them. But, but what do they see? They see the missing piece. And see, that's how important you are. <laughs> you are. 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 would tell us this. It would say that the more, the more, the more silent parts of the body, that's my language there, the, the parts that don't seem to stand out as much, do you, know what, do you know what word the Bible uses for you? You're indispensable. You are so needed in the body of Christ. It's either the power of all or quite frankly, we all suffer greatly. And that's why verse 5 is mentioned here. Because you are needed in building God's house. Every one of you, cactus and venue, every one of us are needed. And this brings us to point two. And that is that when each part does, when each does, plays a part, when each of us does our own work, God does his best work. And that's really what we need to see. That's really the whole point of chapter 3. That when you and I band together as a church and build together our spiritual walls, God enters in. And if you've ever experienced this, God enters in and the whole is actually greater than the sum of its parts. I mean, only God can do that. 
You would never think that would happen. You would think the sum of the parts is the sum of the parts. But God in the New Testament is said to do immeasurably beyond we could ever ask and imagine. And many of us know that verse. Do you understand that that's in the context of the church? That's in the context of you and I banding together and being the church. God can do immeasurably beyond all that we could ask or imagine. And so here's a question I want to end with this morning. What does this mean for us today? I mean, we get it out of Nehemiah, but what's the application for the people of God at Scottsdale Bible Church in the 21st century? We've given a ton of thought to this over the years. We've come up with a great mission statement. We're here to win, build, send, win people to Christ and build them up and send them back out. But we have a wonderful vision statement. We want to be an organic community of people who have a radical faith in Jesus Christ and a head-turning love for each other. It's a wonderful vision statement. But what do we do with all of that? And a couple years ago, we landed on three words, three kind of strategy words that, that we started sharing with all of you. You've seen these words before, that if somebody considers Scottsdale Bible Church their spiritual home, if this is where you're building your spiritual wall, there's three things that we want you to do to be a player. And they are worship, connect, and serve. That's what it takes to be a follower of Christ through our body. Worship, connect, and serve. What do we mean by those? Well, you're doing the first one here right now, so you get a gold star for that one. You're in worship. And part of what we've encouraged people to do is to take one of our eight different worship offerings every weekend, and they're growing year by year, and just commit to one of them. And one of the beautiful things about Scottsdale Bible over the last few years is that we have developed differing styles of worship in all different types of settings and sizes so that there would be no barricade or barrier for you to find a worship setting that you feel comfortable in. I can remember back in the 90s, one of the most difficult things for me is that I had to go through what Christianity Today would label the worship wars. Do you guys remember those? When music started to change, as I've fondly said, everything changed with Elvis when it comes to music, and it did. And some of you lived through that. And we went from enlightenment-based music that was more driven by uh, non-plug-in instruments. <laughs> and, and then all of a sudden the technological revolution came and boom, we were ushered into our modern age and music changed drastically. And initially, many people in the church didn't like that music, so we were caught in what James Riccatelli calls in his book, When Music Divides a Church, a once-every-600-year shift in musicology. And it really rocked the church world. And yet it was sad for me as a pastor, because I'm pastoring as a young pastor in the 90s, and I'm dealing with marriages that are falling apart, and kids that are going off the deep end, and people that are suffering from depression and anxiety out of nowhere, and, and then spiritual confusion and doubt. And I got people coming up going, I didn't like that song we sung today. <laughs> and honestly, I've never been the most patient pastor in the world, but, but I, and I didn't say this, but I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. Really? Really? We're going to have a discussion about that. And yet, as I settled down a little bit, you can tell I've settled down a little bit on that issue, <laughs> I, I realized that music is important to people. I get it. I've said for years, I love both kinds of music, country and western. I'm a fan of music. <laughs> I have two radio stations in my car, and they're both country music stations. I get it. I'm sophisticated. So I'm, I'm in tune with you guys. Get it? In tune with you? All right. Anyways... So here's what we've done at Scottsdale Bible Church. We're not going to divide over music. So, so if you came last night 
uh, we had more contemporary music. I call it unapologetically contemporary music. If you would have come to the last service, we had what we call uniquely traditional worship. And we do that at the 8 a.m. hour. This today was blended. Our cactus and our venue had contemporary music. And so we have three different styles in eight different venues. If you don't like a really large group, then Cactus has about 400 seats and Venue has about 400 seats. Do you see what we're trying to do? We want you to worship God. We want you to lift your voices and tenderize your hearts and get your mind focused on Him. And we don't want music to be a barrier. But you got to work with us on this. I mean, still people come up to me and they'll say, I didn't like the music in today's service. And I'll say, okay, I get it. Patience, kindness. Okay, I get it. And, and, and I say, but you know what? Then at the last hour, we had a service that might be better for you. And I kid you not, they'll say, well, I don't like to get up that early. I, I go, what do I do with that? Honestly, what do I do with that? Okay, we'll try to have one for you at that hour. And by the way, we are. When we build our chapel, we hope to have uniquely traditional worship at 9 and then at 10.30. But you know what? Somebody's going to say to me, why don't we have it at 2 in the afternoon? Get out. Go. Find another church. No, I'm kidding. I won't do that. I will not do that. I will not do that. You should not like that. That was a joke. But I do beg you. I beg you to find a worship offering and stay in it. And get to know the people with you. I love the first three rows here. For those of you who live in the first three rows, you're kind of my church. I've said that for a long time. And, and, and I greet you guys and I talk to you. And I feel like, don't Sister True, we have our own little community here in the first three rows. Vera, I mean, we do. And so some of you might want to come down and join us any Sunday. <laughs> but I hope you get to know the people around you. And that's what body life is about. So we begin with our worship. And, and then we connect. Now, some of you are saying, what's connection? Here is one of the downsides of having such large group worship, whether it's a few hundred or even a couple thousand, is that it really is hard to do some of the deeper spiritual stuff. Have you ever found that? I mean, you're not really praying personally with others. You're not confessing sin. You're not swapping stories in any meaningful way. And yet all of those things that I just mentioned, do we understand, are critical to our spiritual growth. If you try to grow spiritually, if you try to get a second wind, if you try to hang in there in the long haul, and you never have richer relationality with a brother or sister in a smaller setting than we can provide here, you will never grow as God wants you to. There's a great story that Malcolm Gladwell tells in his um, book, uh, Outliers, and uh, it's a story of a guy by the name of Christopher Langan. And Langan was a genius with, get this, with a staggering IQ of 195. To put that in perspective, Einstein had an IQ of 150. So this is a huge IQ. Langan was so smart that during high school, he could ace any foreign language test by skimming the textbook for two or three minutes right before the text. He got a perfect score on his SATs, and this is true, even though at one point he fell asleep. This guy was so smart that he was just off the charts. And yet, he never used his exceptional gifts and talents. He ended up basically working on a horse farm in rural Missouri for all of his life. Just a total waste. Not that horse farming is a waste, but for this guy, not a good use of his gifts and talents. And according to Gladwell in his book, the reason that this is, now dial into this, is that he never had a community around him to help him in using his gifts. 
Gladwell summarizes it this way in talking about Langan. He says, Langan had to make his way alone, and no one, not rock stars, not professional athletes, not software billionaires, not even geniuses, ever makes it alone. Isaac Newton once said that if he was able to see farther than others, it was only because he was standing on the shoulders of giants. He realized the community and the support around him and that allowed him to see the things that he has. And that is so true for you and I. If we're ever going to become the people, the individuals that God wants us to be, it's only because you're in connection with some godly others around you who can do life with you and challenge you, encourage you, be there with you during the hard times and even the joyous times. We believe that so deeply here at Scottsdale Bible Church that our elders, who are the spiritual leaders of our care, 13 men right now leading the church, they engage in regular soul care with each other as a small group. Our staff is broken down into small groups. I'm in a weekly small group with men that I consider peers that can journey with me in the richer parts of life. And we offer tons of avenues here and at Cactus and Venue for entryway into this type of connection. We have over 200 current small groups at our church. Men's, women's, community groups, support groups. They're in your bulletin this week. All different types of support group offerings right now if you're in need and want to connect with those that can relate. We have numerous Bible studies going on at our church. They're so organic, we can't even keep up with them. They just occur in communities all around our city. We have enrichment classes of all different sizes and interests. I mean, my challenge to you is simply to find a point of connection. We offer regular events for you to get connected. And if you have trouble with those, then we have 25 pastors make an appointment with one of them. And they will help you find a connection point here. But it's part of building our wall at our church. You need it and we need you to need it for us to be the body of Christ. And then lastly, but not lastly in order, we serve. Simply put, we need to find a place to give back, to use the gifts and talents that God has given to each of us to build up the body of Christ. And again, I don't want to be too negative here at all, but I got to tell you, I just love it. When church people come up to me and they say, well, I tried to get involved in service at Scottsdale Bible Church and I just couldn't find a place. I'm telling you, you don't want to say that to me. Because if you do, here's what I will say. Now it's hard for me to get through this. Well, have you tried being an usher, greeter, bulletin stuffer, tech person, choir, band, orchestra, security, parking lot? Have you tried the youth ministry, children's ministry, marriage ministry, women's ministry, men's ministry, office help, missions, one of our 25 local outreach partners? Have you tried joining an enrichment class and serving there, getting in a Bible study, being a leader? How about leadership training, men's or women's? Need I go on and on? I went to the Barrett-Jackson last week. I lasted three hours before I had car overload. I just couldn't take all those nice cars that I couldn't buy. And so after about three hours, I said, I just don't think I can look at any more cars. I feel that way with Scottsdale Bible Church. I really do. I, I mean, when I was in Cleveland, I, I would drive by my, my church with my kids there. and We had a church of about 1,000. And it'd be a Thursday night, and there'd be like 40 cars in the parking lot. And, and the kids would say, Dad, what's going on at the church? And I'd tell them. We'd been here just a few months. We're driving down Shea, and there's like, 200 cars in the parking lot. My kids go, Dad, what's going on at the church? I go, I haven't the foggiest idea. <laughs> I mean, there's so much stuff going on here, I haven't a clue most days. 
Uh, there, there are rooms that I've never been in in this church, and I don't think I ever will, honestly. Somebody once in a while will say, we're meeting in E156. Where is that? I have to look on a map. And that's good news, by the way. There are lots of opportunities. Something's always going on here. Don't tell me that there's not a place for you to serve. And please realize, Worship Connect serve is not magic. It's not. You need to bring yourself to the table, amen? You need to bring your heart. You need to bring your authentic life. Share who you are in a small group, a service setting, in worship. Man, what you put into it is what you'll get out of it. But I promise you this, you come and lay your soul down in an environment like that, God will bless you. He will grow you, and together we will build the spiritual house here that God wants to be built. I want to show you uh, a My Story as we wrap up here. This is a, uh, a My Story we just put together this week. Uh, it's a bit of a unique one. It's Andy Platt. Andy is the head of the construction crew for Kitchell Construction that's doing our campus redesign over the next two years. And you're saying, why'd you do a My Story on him? You're going to see. He, he's a wonderful follower of Jesus, has a great story, and the parallels to what we've been talking about here today are life-giving. So look up here on the screen, and then I'll wrap us up here in just a sec. My wife and I have five children and two foster children as well, so we have a full house. Both my parents were believers. Uh, my mom was a, a very strong believer and taught us the difference between uh, a relationship with Christ versus you know, having a religion. I grew up the son of a uh, master carpenter and general contractor. My dad was in business for himself, and from the time I was old enough to hold a shovel, you know, I'd go to his job sites on the weekends and we'd be digging trenches or whatever, and um, uh, became a, a carpenter out of high school. Continued being a professional carpenter for many, many years. Uh, was a carpenter superintendent for a long time. Learned how to manage the entire job and all the subs. And then uh, several years later, I joined with Kitchell and uh, been here for about seven years. When Kitchell was first approached about bidding on this project, um, I was actually pretty excited. I came in and we developed a plan and I grabbed uh, Tom Sharda at the end of the interview and just said to him, Tom, what you guys are doing to impact this world for Christ is, is phenomenal and it's, it's, it's going to, you know, God is going to bless you guys through this process. And um, I'm, now I'm a, uh, I go to church every day. Right? <laughs> uh, a typical day for me at Scottsdale Bible Church, um, I get here very early in the morning, anywhere from, you know, four and five in the morning. And uh, we all focus tremendously on team environment, creating a culture of communication and collaboration. It's understanding that it takes hundreds of people to complete a project successfully. Where everybody is looking for solutions, we are solutions oriented. We're not looking to be, there's a problem, call me when you have a solution. It's, hey, we've identified this constraint over here. How are we gonna allow this to be successful? You know, and it's not positive thinking, that's practically applying God's wisdom here on earth. If the electrician doesn't hit his underground date, then the concrete guys can't finish their slab on grade, and then the masons can't start on the walls, and the steel guys can't start on their structure, and it just, telegraphs through the rest of the project. All these challenges that are identified are just opportunities to improve, you know, because I know that I don't have all the answers, but as a team, we find those answers. Right, there are a few greater feelings that are as, as gratifying as, as tangibly creating a structure, um, a house, um, a, a building, especially a building place of worship, you know, but being part of, of creating something, it's, it's a wonderful feeling. I am blessed because I'm a child of God. 
I am blessed because I have a wonderful job with a wonderful company. I'm blessed because I get to participate in a kingdom-changing project such as the remodel here at Scottsdale Bible Church. Compelled by Grace is fantastic. And I'm blessed because I have a wonderful wife who loves me, who loves the Lord. Five wonderful biological children and two wonderful foster children. And I absolutely love my job. I'm Andy Platt, Kitchell Contractors Project Superintendent for Compelled by Grace. And this is my story at Scottsdale Bible Church. So here's the deal for you and me. We have a bunch of workers out there that, as you just see, function really well as a team. They understand what it means to support each other when things fall apart. They're solution-based. They band together, and they realize that it's going to be, in a very real way, in the power of all, that they're going to get done what we're asking them to do, what many of you have generously financially given to so that this could happen. But here's my challenge to you as a pastor. Wouldn't it be a travesty? If for the next two years we watch them do all that, and then when the ball is handed off to you and me, to now spiritually build what God wants to do in this place in an even more concerted way, wouldn't it be a travesty if we were not the power of all? That would just be such, well, it'd just be awful. But the reality is, is that we all have a choice. We all have a choice as people who consider Scottsdale Bible Church your spiritual home, to band together as the church. And as Heibel said years ago, to enlist in little platoons as we connect with each other and then come together as congregation-sized times of worship and then serve like crazy each other, both outside these walls as well as inside. And as we do those things, to watch God enter into the process and then as he says, for a two or three come together, there I am among you. That's our vision and our hope. And so I hope today that as you do an audit of your current experience here at our church, that you're willing to roll up your sleeves and build with us as we have a vision to see us become more and more the body of Christ that God wants us to be. Uh, we're going to take up our elder fund offering right now, Cactus and Venue, as well for you. This is a great time to apply what we just talked about. We give away over $300,000 a year in need to, or in, in resources to those in need. So every month we take up a second offering for that. We're going to do that right now. And Troy is going to lead us in a closing song. And then uh, I think it's Gerald and Cody will be leading our other venues. And so let's bow and pray for that time. Father God, I thank you for all that you have given us here today. As Ephesians 1 verse 3 would say, we have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. As Peter would say, we've been given everything that we need for life and godliness. And God, I'm so glad that you have given us. And so God, I pray that as we uh, today hear the call to be those who are not shy to build your kingdom and the hearts and minds of those around us through worshiping and connecting with them and serving. Just as Nehemiah called his people to build the wall, God, I pray that, Lord, you would help us to be the church that you want us to be and help us individually, Lord, each one of us to not be noble-like, but to be those who are not afraid to roll up our sleeves, even get our hands a little bit dirty and follow your son, Jesus. God, empower us by your spirit. Give us joy in the process. May you move in our midst as a result. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together.